Hi everybody and welcome to the Grok Science Show. Today we'll be talking about something we can all relate to, adolescence. For this episode, we welcome to the show Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, professor of psychology at Temple University. He'll tell us what happens to the brain during adolescence, how the reward system changes, and what's different about the memories we make during that time. And if you're thinking that none of this applies to you anymore, you might be interested to hear that adolescence today is actually much longer than it used to be. So dust off those old memories and let's learn why we probably regret a few of them. Hi, yeah, I'm Lawrence Steinberg, a professor of psychology at Temple University and the author, most recently, of Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. Great. So... I'd like to start with a pretty unusual question that you posed in your book, and that is, what is the purpose of adolescence? Well, um, the purpose of adolescence uh, is ultimately, you know, to to prepare for adulthood, and that means uh, finding a mate and uh, ultimately reproducing, but more importantly, acquiring the skills and psychological capacities necessary to function independently. I mean, all mammals uh, need to kind of leave their home environments and function as independent, autonomous individuals um, when they go through adolescence and begin the the long period of adult life. And um, what what happens to the brain during adolescence? How does it physically change? Well, the brain goes through a series of, of changes during adolescence that begin with the, uh, the impact of puberty on, on the brain. So puberty doesn't just arouse our sex drive or transform our physical appearance or our reproductive functioning. Sex hormones actually affect the way the brain develops. And one of the first changes to take place in the adolescent brain um, involves an increase in activity uh, that um, requires the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine serves a lot of important functions in the brain, but one of the most important is for the experience of pleasure or reward. So when we anticipate something pleasurable or when we actually experience something pleasurable like food or sex or praise, we get a little dopamine squirt, and that's what makes us feel good. So there is this increase in dopamine activity in the brain's reward centers at the beginning of adolescence um, that, frankly, it just makes good things feel even better. Um, and we think that this is one reason why there's an increase in risky behavior during adolescence because people are so inclined to go after rewards that they're willing to go after them even if there's something dangerous um, lurking in the environment. So that's... Uh, phase one, um, we might think of that, and in the book I call it sort of starting the engines. Um, the the second important aspect of brain development during adolescence is the, the strengthening of a region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And so that's the part of the brain that we think of as the CEO of the brain. It, it's important for all kinds of advanced thinking abilities like decision-making and planning and judgment. It's also very important for self-control and self-regulation. And this part of the brain matures gradually during the course of adolescence and into the early 20s, although it's mainly um, at an adult level of maturity by the time people are 15 or 16 years old. Um, and this 
this is kind of the braking system that that helps regulate what those engines aroused by puberty are motivating us to do. And then the third phase of adolescent brain development uh, involves better connections maturing between these different brain systems, particularly between the prefrontal cortex and other parts of the brain. And that allows for much better self-control and self-regulation because it allows the the decision-making and the emotional parts of the brain to better communicate with each other. And that's still ongoing during the late teen and early 20s, um, which which helps to account for why there are still improvements in self-control um, as people mature through the, the early part of the 20s. Yeah, good to know that 16 is not the peak of your self-control. No, it's not. <laughs> and, um, you know, people don't show completely mature self-control really un- un- until the, the, the mid-20s. Okay. Um, and another thing that you, you mentioned in your book is that adolescence actually rivals the early years of zero to three in terms of brain malleability. Um, yeah, um, that's a, um, a relatively new revelation. Um, so we've known for some time that the brain uh, goes through this period of heightened malleability or plasticity, as neuroscientists call it, um, during the early years, what we often refer to as zero to three. But we've learned relatively recently that adolescence is a second period of heightened brain plasticity, which means that there are opportunities to influence the brain for the good, but there are also, um, unfortunately, vulnerabilities that make the brain potentially harmed by toxic experiences during adolescence. And and what what do we really have to worry about um with with adolescents um, in terms of those experiences, I mean, are you talking about um, d- d- disorders that might emerge then? Yeah, I, I, I think there are three principal ones that we need to be careful about. Um, the first is the emergence of mental health disorders. So, adolescence is the most common age for the onset of a serious mental health problem. Um, if you if you look at all of them and you average across all serious mental illnesses, the average age of onset is 14. Um, And this reflects the vulnerability of the adolescent brain to um, adverse experiences. So that's number one. A second is the impact of recreational drugs on the brain. We know that exposure to alcohol and nicotine and illicit drugs before the age of 15 is much more harmful to the brain than the same amount of exposure after the age of 21. That's the comparison that's been done in a lot of research. And that's because the parts of the brain that are responsive to these recreational drugs um, are still very plastic um, during the early adolescent years. And so as those brain systems are developing, their development can be um, changed by... um, you know, by by exposure to these different substances, and um, the the what the data show are that people who start using um, recreational drugs before the age of 15 are seven to ten times more likely to develop a substance abuse problem or an addiction than people who wait until they're 21. And actually, it's not as some people might think, because the kind of people who start using drugs early are different 
because we know from research with animals that if animals are randomly assigned to be exposed to those substances when they're just gone through puberty, which is kind of comparable to human adolescence, um, that they're much more likely to become dependent and addicted than if they're not exposed until they're mature adults. So um, it really is important that kids stay away from those substances when their brain is still so plastic. And then the third is sort of a general stress reactivity. The brain is much more reactive to stress during adolescence because of the impact of pubertal hormones on the brain's stress axis. Um, so uh, exposure to traumatic experiences can be worse during adolescence than during other times in development. Again, because the brain is still so plastic. Um, but does it also mean that maybe um, psychiatric disorders are easier to treat also? Yeah, I mean, it's clear that psychiatric disorders are easier to treat during adolescence than they are during adulthood um, because the brain is more malleable. So the longer you have a disorder that goes untreated and the older you are, um, uh, if it's persistent, the harder it is to treat, the more intractable it becomes. So that's why it's important that if you are suffering from a mental health problem or you have a child or a friend who's suffering from one that you should get help earlier rather than later. That's interesting. And um, and are there are there certain disorders that are, um, more commonly affect adolescents than than other age groups, or, or certain disorders that might emerge during adolescence? Um, the you know the most common disorders to emerge during adolescence are depression. Um, and substance abuse problems, and those are actually are the most common disorders in the population in general. So if you if you don't have a psychiatric disorder, but you know by the time you're 25, chances are you're never going to develop one. Mm -hmm. um, but depression is um, is is quite common during adolescence, especially among females, uh, and um, and substance abuse is also developing often during adolescence, and that's more common among males. Okay. So, so you also bring up um, differences in memory during adolescence. Um, mm -hmm. You say that, you know, no matter how old you are, you remember big events, but um, actually during adolescence, you remember a lot of very mundane events, which I think is going to resonate with a lot of people. I think a lot of people um, will find that true of themselves. Yeah, it's a thing that psychologists um, call the reminiscence bump. Um, so in, in research on this, it turns out that people recall details of events that happen and people that they've um, encountered during adolescence um, more vividly than, than events that happened to them or people that they've met at other points in life, whether childhood or adulthood. And um, it, it was thought for a while that this might be because so many momentous things happen during adolescence, but, you know, as, as you noted, um, this is true for mundane events as well as momentous ones. And it also turns out to be true for things other than personal events. So the, the books and the movies and the music, that's a very common experience that we um, mm. encounter during adolescence are all remembered better than those that we encounter during other points of development. And, and we think that this is because of the sensitivity of the adolescent brain to experience. Hmm. Um, so you mentioned that uh, uh, 
that peer pressure is a big thing that people think about with adolescents, right? How has how has the way we think about peer pressure changed? Um, yeah, well, um, we know that adolescents often do um, risky or reckless or dangerous things in groups. And a lot of us, I think, would admit that we did a lot of crazy things when we were with our friends that we wouldn't have done had we just been by ourselves. Um, I mean, when I talk about this to, you know, to audiences, everybody in the audience nods at that. Um, and the, the, we've been studying this in our lab at Temple University now for a long time because I think that most people believe that the reason that adolescents often do risky things in groups is that they get direct encouragement from their peers to engage in those behaviors. And even though some of that happens, what we've shown in our research is that this peer effect on adolescent risk-taking occurs even when the peers are not allowed to talk to each other. So we've done experiments in which we have uh, people of different ages uh, play uh, risk-taking games on computers. So one of them mimics the situation when you're driving and you approach an intersection with a yellow light and have to make a decision about whether to run it or not. That's a common decision that drivers have to make. Um, and in this game, um, you can you can put the brakes on and stop, or you can go through the intersection. Sometimes you make it through safely, and other times a car that you haven't seen is coming through the intersection and you crash into it. Um, so what we what we discovered was that when adolescents are playing this game with their friends watching them, not talking to them, just watching them, and they don't even have to be in the same room. They can be watching on a monitor from another room. But when adolescents play this game and they're being observed by their friends, they take more risks and they crash the car more often than when they're playing it by themselves. But with adults, there's no difference in how they play the game um, by themselves uh, versus when they're being observed. So... Once we discovered that, we, we took this experiment into the scanner and we, we did another study in which people were playing the same game while their brain was being imaged. And either they were playing it with their friends watching them from another room or without. And we found the same thing. Adolescents take more chances when their friends are watching than when they're alone. Adults play the same way regardless. But more interestingly, when adolescents play the game and their friends are watching them, it lights up their brain's reward centers. And that makes them pay more attention to the potential rewards of a risky choice and less attention to the potential downside. Um, and so what we found was that the more those reward centers were activated by the presence of peers, the more chances kids took when they played the game. So it seems that peers can influence risk-taking without even talking to each other. Uh, and um, I think maybe the coolest thing that we've discovered is that we repeated this experiment using mice. Um, mice, you know, like all mammals, go through puberty, so we can model uh, adolescent behavior in mice. And we did a study where we put mice in a cage and... Um, allowed them unlimited access to alcohol. These are the kinds of mice that are used to test um, the effects of alcohol on the brain. They like to drink. Um, and we tested them either by themselves or with two other mice in the cage with them, and half the sample were um, tested as adolescents and half were tested as fully grown adults. And the adolescent mice drink more alcohol when they're in groups than when they're by themselves themselves. 
but the adult mice drink the same amount when they're by themselves as when they're in groups. So this feature of, uh, you know, involving the Peter effect on the brain may be a hardwired aspect of development. So somehow um, the presence of peers increases the reward that individuals get from taking risks during adolescence. Um, not quite. It, it, <laughs> what, what it does is it increases reward activity in the brain, and that makes um, individuals more likely to take risks. I see. Interesting. Um, Okay, so so another assumption that you challenge in your book, um, it, or, or that you report in your book, is um, actually the length of adolescence. Uh, how how has the length of adolescence changed? Well, adolescence as a period of life has been stretched at both ends. Um, it's been stretched at the beginning because the age at which people go through puberty has been declining and continues to decline. Um, so at the beginning of the 20th century, the average American girl began menstruating when she was 14 and a half, and now it's closer to 12. Um, and there have been comparable declines in the age of puberty for boys as well. Boys today are likely to go through puberty about two years earlier than they did in the 1970s in the United States. Um, at the same time that's been happening, which has made adolescents begin earlier, it's been taking longer for individuals to make the transition into adulthood. Um, we see this in terms of prolonged schooling, delayed marriage, um, a longer time during which people are financially dependent on their parents. Uh, and as a consequence of that, um, adolescence is stretched at that end too. So if you look at 25-year-olds today, for example, um, they're twice as likely to still be students as their parents' generation was at that age, and they're only half as likely to be married. Um, so uh, adolescence now lasts about 15 years from the time of the beginning of puberty to when people enter into these adult roles, whereas in the 1950s it was about half as long as that. So it, it is a much longer period of life than it's ever been. Um. And do you do you kind of trace that to to biology or to to society or culture? Or what do you, what do you think is going on? Well, I think that it's it's there are different explanations for the for the two different trends. So the earlier onset of puberty is due really to um, a number of things. The, the probably the biggest contributor is obesity. That we know that kids who are um, heavier and in particular fatter go through puberty earlier than kids who are thinner. And because there's been an epidemic of childhood obesity, that has um, increased the number of people who go through puberty earlier. Uh, a second contributor to earlier puberty is the exposure of children to what we call endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So these are chemicals that affect the way our hormonal system works um, and that makes puberty happen earlier. And these chemicals are ubiquitous in modern society. They're in what we eat, they're in cosmetics, they're in plastics, they're in pesticides. And so the exposure of children to these chemicals has, has made puberty start earlier, too. Um, and then finally, there's actually some evidence that increased exposure to light may be um, making puberty happen earlier as well. Uh, we know that Kids around the world who grow up near the equator go through puberty earlier than kids who grow up near the poles, 
and that has been linked to the fact that when you live near the equator, you're exposed to more sunlight um, over the course of your childhood years, and that leads to earlier puberty. But it turns out that exposure to artificial light um, can have the same effect, and um, there is some recent research suggesting that the kind of light that's emitted from computer monitors and um, smartphones and tablets may play a special role in hastening the onset of puberty and because our kids have so much more screen time now. Um, that may be making puberty happen earlier as well. The causes of the delayed transition to adulthood, I think, are cultural and economic, not biological. Um, and I think it's largely driven by the requirement for more years of schooling to get a decent job. So uh, I, I think everybody recognizes that you need a college degree now to get a, a well-paying job. It used to be the case that having just a couple of years of college gave you some advantage over somebody with just a high school diploma, but that advantage has pretty much disappeared. So you actually really need a college degree. And nowadays, you know, what we typically refer to as a four-year degree takes an average of six years to get. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, most people are not finishing their formal education until they're 24, 25 years old. And, you know, there are, are a kind of cascade, cascading consequences of that. So if you're in school for much longer, you're probably going to be financially dependent on your parents longer. You're going to delay entry into the labor force. You're going to delay getting married. You're going to delay becoming a parent. So th that requirement for more schooling has really lengthened adolescence as well. Um, and you, you say that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. No, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I, I think that uh, the, you know, because adolescence is a time of brain plasticity, we, and we, we think, we don't know, but we, we think that maybe the window of brain plasticity closes when we start entering into repetitive and routine activities, like those that characterize entry-level jobs and often characterize marriage. Um, so as people leave adolescence and then start to enter into these um, situations in which they're not exposed to a lot of novelty, um, the window of plasticity begins to close. And so as, uh, you know, uh, the, the younger you are when you make those transitions, the younger you are when that window closes. And it's uh, very, very hard to get that window back open again. So in regards, delaying adolescence may keep your brain plastic for a little bit longer, as long as your adolescent years are spent exposed to novelty and challenge. So, you know, if, if you're going to spend your 20s sitting around watching talking cats on YouTube, um, then that's <laughs> not going to do your brain much good. But, but if you're spending your 20s in activities that, that challenge you, that demand that your brain works a little bit harder than it had been accustomed to working, that that's going to keep your brain plastic for longer. Um, on, on that note, can you, can you talk a little bit about um, the, the difference between adult plasticity, which actually has gotten um, a lot of um, press, you know, recently, uh, and adolescent plasticity? Because adults still have some malleability, right? That's correct. So the brain is plastic at all ages. It, uh, you know, if it weren't, we couldn't learn anything um, because when you learn something and you retain it, there has to be some underlying change in your brain or else there wouldn't be any way 
to have held on to that knowledge. Um, and because we know that we continue to learn things as adults, we know that the brain is still somewhat plastic then. But what research shows is that the way in which the brain is plastic in adulthood is very different. During childhood and adolescence, the brain is still being built. So we're still developing new brain circuits and still eliminating unused ones. That's something that's called synaptic pruning, when we get rid of brain connections that we don't need. Doing that makes the brain more efficient. And so the brain is still being kind of remodeled during adolescence. During adulthood, when the brain changes as a result of experience, it really involves pretty minor modifications to existing brain circuits rather than the development of new ones or the um, elimination of unused ones. So the, the brain circuitry is tweaked during adulthood, but it's not remodeled in the way that it is during adolescence. So there's a difference between what scientists call developmental plasticity, um, which is the kind of plasticity that's characteristic of childhood and adolescence, versus adult plasticity, which is the kind of plasticity that um, takes place after adolescence. And so what this means is that adolescence really is the last time in brain development when the brain is ever going to be that malleable, that sensitive to experience. Um, can you talk about some common mistakes that people make when they're dealing with adolescence and um, and what they could be doing to encourage or or to be more supportive of of youth? Well, I think that the, the biggest mistake in general, and this is true for parents as well as teachers, um, is, is to approach adolescence as if it's something that we can just survive. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that that's the message that we've been sending parents and kids for far too long, um, that, you know, the best you can hope to do during this period is to just get through it. Um, and if you come out the other side and you're still alive, then you've succeeded. Um, and I think that that's the wrong way to think about it because what the research on brain plasticity shows is that, you know, adolescence is a tremendous opportunity. So even though the plasticity of the brain makes us vulnerable, it also creates um, opportunities to enhance brain functioning and enhance psychological development. So I, I think the biggest mistake that we make is in not providing adolescents with the kinds of experiences that challenge them and that help promote brain development and take advantage of the fact that the brain is still so plastic during this time. And, and can schools also use these findings to support their students? I think that they can. One of the, um, one of the very troublesome set of findings that I discuss in the book concerns American high schools. And our high schools are among the least demanding and easiest and most boring in the world. We know that from surveys of, of students here and abroad. Um, so only one out of every six high school students in America says that she's ever taken even a single difficult class. Um, and, and since difficulty and challenge is what helps the brain grow, schools are not taking advantage of that. Um, if you look at surveys of foreign students who've been exchange students here and spent some time in the United States, um, they also report that schools in their home countries are much harder than they are in the United States. And that is something we hear from American students who spend some time of their adolescence studying abroad. So 
Tool is, as I said, it's, it's boring and it's easy um, in the United States for most kids. Now, I know that there are um, adolescents who go to very demanding schools and they take a lot of AP classes and they are getting that challenge that is so important, but that's really a pretty small minority of, of, of kids. Um, if you look at people entering college, a, a higher percentage of college freshmen need remedial education than have ever taken even a single AP class. Um, so I think we can do a lot more in school to make school more demanding, um, and that's going to help kids develop psychologically as well as academically. Uh, another thing that I talk about in the book is that we're learning about some activities that help the brain develop, particularly in these prefrontal regions that are so important for advanced thinking and for self-control. So mindfulness training turns out to have very positive effects on the brain, and that can be done through things like meditation or, or yoga. Um, aerobic exercise is critical for healthy brain development, and, you know, that's something that we've taken out of our schools, uh, except, you know, in the case of students who are the star athletes. Most kids don't get enough exercise, and that's not good for their brains um, either. Uh, and, um, you know, as I said, de demanding things from kids and, and demanding stuff enough so that sometimes th they fail um, is, is good for brain development because that challenge and, and the experience of an occasional failure is what helps motivate kids to try harder the next time. And then that's going to help build those brain circuits and, and strengthen prefrontal systems. Interesting. Um, so, so is there any last thing you want to say maybe about your book and who could benefit from, from reading it, maybe parents? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I wrote Age of Opportunity because I think um, it's time to change the way we think about adolescents, and this is obviously important if you're the parent of uh, an adolescent or if you're an adolescent yourself. I think it's also important for teachers and for people who work with kids and people who employ kids. Um, and, you know, in, in, in some regards, I, I think it's important for all of us because, I mean, after all, we all have a stake in making sure that the next generation is, is happy and healthy and, and competent. So I, I hope that with the book I, uh, I'll encourage people to think differently about adolescence and, 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 and shed this idea that it's something just to be survived and really um, help us think about how to, how to help kids really thrive. Again, that was Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, and his new book is called Age of Opportunity. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today for the Grox Science Show, and we'll see you back here next week. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon. Keep that risk-taking in check, and until next time, keep on grokking.